Well, it's hard to believe that it's New Year's Day already. Can you believe another Christmas has come and gone? You've taken down the stockings, disconnected the lights, recycled the tree, put up the ornaments and tinsel. We decked the halls, now we've cleared the deck. But though the trimmings of Christmas can be shelved when the season ends, the ramifications of the Christmas message cannot so neatly be dismissed. The implication of the incarnation spills over into every day of the year and into every facet of our lives. I love what author Eugenia Price writes about this time of year. Men and women everywhere sigh on December 26th and say they're glad Christmas is all over for another year. But it isn't over until you is born a Savior. It's just beginning, and it will go on forever. Christmas is a grand beginning. It's the first rock in a massive avalanche. It's the landing of a massive invasion. Christmas marks a new day in the future of mankind. You see, the babe in Bethlehem didn't remain in the manger. He climbed out of that crib, and he embarked down the rough and rocky road of obedience to his father. He traveled a path of suffering and serving and sharing. And for his obedience, he was rewarded in heaven with a position of exaltation and glory and everlasting honor. Messiah traveled from the manger in Bethlehem through the muck and mire of this evil world to ascend to a position today of supreme majesty. The babe, whose name few knew, now possesses the name from which every knee will bow and every tongue will declare its surrender. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus joined humanity on the ground floor. I suppose infant is the ultimate entry-level job. Jesus came as a baby, but he has surely worked his way up the ladder. Today, the babe is now the boss. At Christmas, we see the baby in the manger. We behold the tiny and tender and innocent tot. But the next time this world sees Jesus, he'll pierce the eastern sky. His sword will be drawn, and he'll judge this wicked world. We'll call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In this morning's text, John gets a glimpse of this awe-inspiring, fearful figure that we'll all see in the future. John's heart now is still in love with Jesus. His memories of the Lord are his most cherished possessions. But now in Revelation chapter 1, on a barren island called Patmos, the Apostle John, he sees a vision. He sees the Lord Jesus once again, but this time, Jesus' appearance is radically different than what John had remembered. Now Jesus is clothed in majesty. Jesus has gone from the manger back to majesty. In Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, John recounts what he saw. One like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair <coughs> were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, 
and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. What an incredible vision. Obviously, a startling transformation had taken place. Jesus' swaddling clothes have now been replaced with royal robes. The shoulders that had bore the sin of the world now bear a priestly breastplate. His face, sunburned and weathered on earth, is now as pristine as snow. The gentle eyes of Jesus are now penetrating lasers of truth that pierce through to the heart of a man. His calloused feet, symbols of his humility, are now polished brass made to crush his enemies and endure the flames of judgment. The tender voice that calmed the sea now roars like a waterfall. To sum up John's revelation of Jesus, the lamb that he had remembered has now become a lion. You see, you can't take the babe of Bethlehem and box him up with the electric candles and the plastic Santas. You can't keep him a babe. He no longer fits in the manger. And yet there are many people who try. A Messiah tucked away in the manger is more manageable. He can be controlled if we keep him in the cradle. The living Lord can be bound and gagged with swaddling clothes. Mary Ellen Ashcroft, she writes this, We can tiptoe past a drowsy baby as we buy stocking stuffers for little Susan or an electric lint remover for Aunt Phyllis, forgetful of African children dying, bellies swollen and flies swarming around their eyes. But it would be ridiculous to try to sneak past this Jesus, his eyes aflame. How could we give that cute Christmas mug penguins in red and green top hats to Betty at work without bothering to tell her about Christ if we really thought she'd face those blazing eyes herself one day. Our problem is that we want to keep Jesus a baby, not have him swinging cords in temples and tastelessly knocking over tables. We prefer the slumbering babe to the consuming fire. You see, parents know that you can take a baby anywhere. The kid doesn't have a say. You can just wrap her in a blanket, plop him down in a stroller, and you can take him anywhere you want to go. A babe may pose some inconvenience. He might make travel a little more cumbersome, but a baby doesn't stop a person from doing what he or she wants to do. It's only when that child grows older that they expect to have a say in the agenda. And this is why we like to keep Jesus a baby. By doing so, we can live our lives. We can do whatever we want without interference. We can just box him up and take him with us. A babe can't talk, so we can pretend he agrees with all our selfish ways. As long as Jesus is a baby, we are in control. And Jesus, well, he's just religious cargo. But understand, Jesus is no longer a baby. He's now all grown up. He climbed out of that manger and he ascended to majesty. Agree or not, 
The babe is now the boss. For me, the most fascinating aspect of the Christmas story is that the second person of the Godhead not only became a man, but he remains a man forever. Today, 2,000 years after his birth in Bethlehem, the King of Heaven is still a man. The incarnation was permanent. God is forever attached to mankind. Did you know that today a man rules from the throne of God in heaven? The Word became flesh and continues to wear it. You see, some people think of the Son of God as coming to earth in human form, living and dying and rising from the dead, ascending to the Father, where there He shed His humanity to return to His pre-incarnate status, but not so. Once a man... Jesus is always a man. As Bishop Mool wrote, incarnate, slain, and risen again, Christ, still our brother, is crowned with glory and honor. Amazingly, the Lord is still our brother. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is currently in heaven interceding for us. But here's the kicker. He's doing so as a man. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 tells us, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Here is a stunning, amazing truth. Right now and forevermore to come, a man, Jesus the Messiah, sits on God's throne in heaven. Just chew on that for a while. After the resurrection, Jesus clearly maintained his humanity. He ate food. Many of his disciples touched him. You remember he invited Thomas to touch his scars. Certainly his resurrected body was clothed in eternal glory, but it was human nonetheless. I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked when we look upon Jesus and we see him face to face. Isaiah 52 verse 14 tells us that when Jesus was executed, he was severely beaten. His visage, Isaiah says, or literally his appearance was so disfigured that he no longer looked human. He'd been bloodied. His beard had been plucked out at the root. His brow had been pierced with a crown of thorns. The face of Jesus looked like that of a professional boxer who'd gone 15 rounds in a bloody brawl. Or maybe the victim of a plane crash, disfigured beyond recognition. I believe if the 12 disciples had had a funeral for Jesus, it would have been closed casket. In Revelation 5, John sees the glorified Christ as the Lamb of God. But he says, as a lamb, as though it had been slain. A lamb that had been slaughtered, it had been sacrificed. You see, it's my belief that Jesus in heaven will still bear in his glorified body the scars of his crucifixion. He'll still retain the ugly reminders of his sacrifice for our sin. In fact, our first glimpse of Jesus may be startling. It's not what most of us are expecting. Isaiah says, So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Rather than seeing the beautiful contours of his face, his stout muscles, his rosy cheeks, maybe his handsome visage, 
We're going to look into a damaged phase. An old friend of mine wrote a song once entitled The Eternal Reminder. His song is still one of my favorites. And in his song, he describes our first few moments in heaven. He does it this way. I cried in glee, no more will there be any trace of sorrow or of pain. But my Savior shook his head and said, some things remain. He showed to me his hands and feet, how badly they were scarred. And then I knew as never before how much I owed my Lord. The song ends. The pain and struggles known on earth are gone forevermore, save the only scars that will not fade are on my precious Lord. Here's a riddle for you this morning. What's the only man-made thing in heaven? And the sobering answer, the scars still evident in the body of our Lord Jesus. The story's told of a little girl whose mother was severely disfigured. When the girl started school, her mom's appearance became her greatest embarrassment. Classmates called the mother a monster and poked fun at her. The little girl started to hate her mom for the embarrassment that it caused her. It didn't take long for the mother to realize the problem. One day she set her daughter down and the mother explained how she had acquired all the burn marks, the scars on her face. When this child was a baby, one night their house had caught on fire. The mother had braved the flames to rescue the little girl. Her scars were the result of the severe burns that she had suffered to save her daughter's life. Well, the moment that daughter heard the story, her attitude completely changed. She was never again embarrassed by her mother's scars. In fact, those same scars that were once a source of embarrassment now became a point of pride. And this may just be our response to Jesus when we get to heaven. At first glance, we may be shocked, stunned at the Savior's scars. We might even recoil in horror. But when we remember Jesus' scars were the price He paid for our salvation to show us His love, our tears of sorrow will be turned into tears of joy. We'll praise Him. We'll be filled with eternal gratitude. You see, God became human, not just for 30 plus years that Jesus lived on earth, but He has become human forever. God cares about mankind enough to become a man for all eternity. Hebrews chapter 2 discusses God's plan for mankind. The writer quotes Psalm chapter 8. It was written by a shepherd, you know, his name was David. David wrote, what is man that you are mindful of him. Imagine David, just a young shepherd boy. He's out in his father's fields. He's keeping watch over his family's flock. He's curled up in his sleeping bag. He's under a starry sky. His eyes are fixed on the heavens, marveling at this ocean of stars before him. As young boys do, David's mind may have started running, his imagination He's sailing across cosmic seas. He, he makes putting himself out there somewhere. He's just contemplating it all, taking it in. Maybe imagining himself as a star traveler, exploring the wonders of worlds different from his own. No doubt, David was admiring God's artistry, God's genius, when all of a sudden, it hits him. While he is on earth thinking about God, it hits him that God is in heaven thinking about him. 
What a stunning revelation. David marvels at God's grace. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? Understand that a under a clear night, out in the, not in Atlanta now because you can't see anything because of the light. But when you're out in the country, under a clear night, away from the city lights, you can see about 5,000 stars with the naked eye. If you had a four-inch telescope, you could see two million stars. And then through the powerful 200-inch telescope at California's Mount Palomar Observatory, you could see up to a billion stars. This universe is a vast, vast place, a big place, with endless attractions and fascinations. But what if you could view the universe from God's vantage point? What if you were perched in heaven, sitting on the precipice of the universe? Just think of the vistas you could behold, the sights your eyes could see, quasars and black holes and supernovas. Yet David marveled. Of all these infinite interests that God must have, God has focused his attention on man. David was preoccupied with the heavens, but heaven was preoccupied with David. The mind of God was on a humble man. See, here's the truth that God revealed to David. Throughout his vast universe, God narrows his focus to one tiny galaxy. And of that one tiny galaxy, he focuses in on one tiny solar system. And of that tiny solar system, he zeroes in on one tiny planet. And of the millions of creatures that live on that tiny planet, there is one creature of which God values more than all the others. To God, the cream de la cream is a creature on planet Earth called Man. But why humanity? Why mankind? Why has God invested so much attention on humanity? I mean, we're beings dirged from the dirt, no less. Molded from mud. Nothing but animated ashes. In fact, sweep the kitchen floor and you're reminded of how frail and fleeting we are. As the rock group Kansas used to sing, all we are is dust in the wind. And the Bible agrees. Psalm 103 declares, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The common funeral chant sums us up. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. See, David understood man's value is wrapped up not in what he is, but in what God intended him to be. Mankind is important because we were made in God's image. Our real worth can't be measured by our current condition. You have to return to our creation or fast forward to our coronation to grasp our full value. Because of the damaging effects of sin, mankind is no longer a fraction of the glorious creature we were designed to be and that we one day will become. Realize all living things were made after their own kind. But man was modeled after God. We were created to rule by His side. To enjoy a sweet intimacy with our Creator. To exercise a superior influence over His creation. 
God exalted mankind and intended for us to have dominion over the rest of His creation. We were to rule. In fact, Hebrews 1 says that even angels are commanded to minister to the needs of the saints. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that our destiny includes judging angels. Mankind is the cap and crown of God's creation. We are a divine masterpiece. We are the one creature created by God to actually share in His incredible glory. There is a legend mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. When the archangel Lucifer got wind of this plan for man that God had, he grew jealous. Pride entered his heart. Man would be made in the image of God. He would begin a little lower than the angels, physically inferior, no doubt. But in time, man would eclipse the angels in glory and in greatness. In Lucifer, he couldn't stand that. He couldn't stand the thought that he, a glorious angel, would end up serving a horde of mud daubers. Human hairballs, no less. No offense, but that's, that's what you are. Creatures made from the dust. So he became determined to thwart God's plan. Lucifer and his minions first tried to stop creation. When they failed, he has tried to spoil creation. His goal was to do everything he possibly could to keep man away from God and his plan for man's promotion. Of course, Satan succeeded with the first man, Adam. He tempted him to sin. He stole his dominion. Satan stripped Adam of his prestige and his preeminence. And since then, rather than thrive, the Adam's family has just struggled to survive. Today, human beings live in a fallen world where we've unleashed a Pandora's box of pain and suffering and evil. We've become a slave to our own sin and its destructive consequences. Because of our sin, man has gone from honor to horror, from glory to gory. Man was made to dominate and shine. Instead, we now live defeated and soiled. America's most famous philosopher, Will Rogers, a comedian as well, he once said, God made man a little lower than the angels, and he's been getting a little lower ever since. This is why Messiah became a man. Why God became plastered to our predicament. This is why God allows himself to be held prisoner to our humanity. He has joined this fallen world to free it. To regain from humankind our dignity and the dominion that we've lost. To cleanse us from our sin and to remove our shame and to restore our honor. Jesus adopted our destiny because he was determined to alter it forever. Jesus is now God stooping down and man standing up. Our Lord Jesus is the humiliation of God and the glorification of man. Jesus became a prisoner of our plight in order to restore to us our destiny. You know, it's interesting. When David, that shepherd boy, wrote Psalm 8, he was thinking of mankind in general. What is man that you're mindful of him? But the writer of the book of Hebrews, he applies this passage to one man specifically, that is Jesus. 
In becoming a part of the human family, Jesus could fulfill David's prophecy. In taking on a human body, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But through his obedience and his death, he has now put all things under his feet. Our Lord Jesus has become the man all men were meant to be. Jesus has now been crowned with glory and honor. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, He is now bringing many sons with Him into His glory. The Messiah in the manger has embraced our destiny so He can elevate us to His majesty. One day we'll share His glory. We'll possess the same kind of body. We will even reign and rule with Christ our Lord. You know, in the Bible, whenever a human sees an angel, he or she usually hits the deck. I mean, angelic creatures cause quite a panic. Angels are so awesome, they frighten human observers. Yet 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 tells us that one day believers in Jesus will judge even angels. Hey, we start out a little lower than the angels, looking up to the angels. But in the end, they'll be shining our shoes. Redeemed humans will be of a higher rank than even angels. Hey, we're told in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Like Jesus. Imagine that. That's your destiny if you know Christ. We'll have the same body, those same fiery eyes, that same sparkling countenance, those same bronze feet. Believers in Jesus are destined to one day be like Him. We will become spiritual heavyweights. C.S. Lewis once remarked, A regenerate man in glory would be something we in our ignorance might be tempted to worship. If we saw a saint in glory, the glory that he'll one day possess, we might mistake that human being for something divine. The New American Standard translates Psalm 8 verse 5, Thou hast made man a little lower than God. Indeed, God will exalt mankind to dizzying heights. Paul Bilheimer, in his book, Destined for the Throne, he writes these words, listen closely. God has exalted, redeemed humanity to such a sublime rank that it is impossible for Him to elevate them any further without bringing them into the inner circle of the Godhead itself. You know, there is a lot of talk today about positive mental attitude, boosting one's self-esteem. You need to achieve self-actualization. You need to be the best you that you can be. The human potential movement says that man is still evolving, that he's yet to reach his highest potential. The New Age believes that humans are destined to be gods. Well, I agree that man is not a fraction of what he can be, even what he will be. But the critical error made today is this. Man is not rising upward. Man has fallen downward. As Augustine put it, man is a good thing spoiled. 
mankind lost his glory when he rebelled against God. And he will never see that glory restored apart from God. I'm sure you've noticed that today everyone is trying to find themselves. I found myself and didn't like him. You know, for most folks, finding themselves is only swapping one shirt for another until you find the one that itches least. The irony is, is that you can't really discover your true purpose, your real identity, your ultimate destiny until you find your Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the man that all men were meant to be. God wants you to reach your full human potential, but not by esteeming self, but by esteeming the Savior. You become like God, not by trying to be God yourself, but by letting Jesus be God in your life. As big as the universe is, it's still only big enough for one God. Humble yourself. Surrender your will to Jesus. Bow your life to Him, and God will exalt you with Him in the life to come. You will be all that you can be, not by joining the army, but by joining Jesus. Jesus became human, and He remains human today to guarantee our exaltation. Jesus descended from majesty to manger. Then He ascended from manger back to majesty so we could stay in step. Andrew Murray writes of Jesus, his humanity is the revelation of what we can be. His divinity is the pledge that we can be it. Once there was a mechanic and a sculptor. They were competing to create a statue that would sit on the pinnacle of this huge skyscraper. The sculpture statue was chosen. It was an exquisite piece of art. It was filled with meticulous detail. But as the crane hoisted it upwards into the air... It began to lose its definition, and the higher it got, the more it looked like just a shapeless block. That's when they tried the mechanics statue. On the ground, it seemed clumsy, uncouth. But as it rose higher and higher toward its perch, its deformities vanished. The further it ascended, the more elegant it looked. And this is the Christian's plight. Today, we appear rough and uncut and unseemly. We're nothing but dust. But as we ascend with Jesus, we're going to take on a breathtaking glory. And here's why all this matters. Tomorrow's destiny produces today's determination. Let me repeat that. Your destiny tomorrow is going to determine your determination today. I'm no prophet, but I guarantee that in the very near future, you are going to be tempted to sin. You are going to be lured into some kind of compromising situation. And that's where you need to be sure of your destiny. Why sell out to cheap thrills and earthly promotion when if you'll just wait a little while longer, you can join Jesus in His glory. Again, tomorrow's destiny shapes today's determination. 
Why swap God's eternal riches for this world's tasteless treasures and passing praise? Why risk a tragic compromise when so much is at stake? In 1 John 3, verse 3, the Apostle John is speaking of our future glory when he says, Everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. It was Emerson who penned the refrain, Could you envision, see yourself, the man God meant? You never more would be the man you are content. In his science fiction space adventure, Pelalandra, C.S. Lewis, he wonders what it would be like to taste fruit in a perfect world. He has his earthling travel to a planet unsoiled by sin. This mortal man finds some unfallen fruit. Lewis writes these words. Great globes of yellow fruit hung from the trees. He picked one, and he turned it over and over in his hand. His finger punctured it, and it went through into coldness. He put the slit to his lips, extracting the smallest experimental sip, but the first taste put his caution to flight. It was different from other tastes, It was so different from other tastes, it seemed wrong to even call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a new genus of pleasure, unheard of among men. For one to drink of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. My point is, even heaven's simplest pleasures are going to provoke a kind of ecstasy unheard of here on earth. This is why heaven is worth the wait. Heaven is worth the wait. We're going to need the glorified bodies just to handle all the heavenly highs. Why forfeit eternal bliss for earthly attractions? You see, to know what awaits me in eternity builds up my immunity to sinful temptations in the here and now. Again, tomorrow's destiny determines today's faithfulness. Granted, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. To enter God's glory, we are all called on to obedience and to make some sacrifices. Numerous passages tell us that if we suffer with Jesus now, we shall reign with Him then. We must bow in this life to be exalted in the life to come. Serving is needed preparation for ruling. But in light of our future glory, all these present sufferings is a small price to pay. The Apostle Paul says as much. Romans 8 verse 18 tells us, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Listen. Heaven's first second. Heaven's first second will be joy enough to more than make up for all the pain that this world dished out. That's all it'll take is one second. Hey, it's okay for us to celebrate Christmas. It's okay to recall the birth of the Savior. Just don't leave Him in the manger. Jesus is all grown up now. The child of peasants has become the king of glory. He's been upgraded from crib to a crown. From the manger to majesty. Make Jesus as much a part of your new year as you did your Christmas celebration. 
Let him fill your every day. Let him color your world in every way. The incarnation of Jesus accomplished more than just add another holiday to our calendar. It did more than just create a Christmas. The incarnation now marks the turning point for every human being who has ever or will ever walk this planet. Let me close with an incident from Luke chapter 2. Joseph and Mary had brought their firstborn son to the temple to be circumcised when Jesus is seen by an old man named Simeon. He lights up. I mean, he's waited his whole life for this moment. He utters a prophecy. He says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many. You see, because of Christmas, God has forever altered the destiny of the human race. Every man, every woman rises or falls based on their response to the Messiah in the manger. Jesus now occupies the pivotal position in the universe. Will you force him to oversee your final fall? Or will you bow to him so he'll ensure your future glory? The choice is yours. Just remember, all year, every year, the babe in the manger is also the Lord of glory. Father.